Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians three fourteen through 21. This is the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or even think, according to the power at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to a magisterial passage this morning. A prayer penned by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. May we understand it. May we be transformed by it, and may we act on what we learn today, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. It's been said that if you want to know someone's priorities, you should examine their calendar and their checkbook, because what each of us does with our time and our money reveals what we value and what we think is important, and that's true. For Christians, something additional could be said. We can tell what we care about by the content of our prayers. John Stott said it this way, one of the best ways we discover a Christian's chief anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about what concerns us and are evidently not concerned about matters which we do not include in our prayers. Don Carson wrote a great book we've mentioned many times called Praying with Paul, which I used for the title of today's message. In that book, Carson exposits several prayers from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, prayers that reveal what the Apostle really cared about, prayers that demonstrated his Priorities as he poured out his heart in his letters. And today, today's passage is one of those prayers. This is actually the second prayer of Paul in this letter. We covered the first one a number of weeks ago at the end of chapter 1. So today we're going to consider the structure of this prayer, how he prays, and what he prays for. And then we're going to spend a good chunk of time at the end an application for us today. So I invite you to look in your bulletin. You can follow along with the sermon outline. First, the address. Let's read again verse 14 and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. 
Way back in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, for this reason, and then he breaks off and talks about the gospel and his own participation in that gospel and implications for unity in that gospel, which Bentley took us through last week. So he is now continuing that thought from verse 1. And this reason, then, is what he's been talking about in the first two chapters. The amazing work of God in the gospel of Christ, where God has sovereignly brought Jews and Gentiles together into one unified race, into this new community called the church. All this was accomplished through Christ's work on the cross. And the purpose for this new humanity is spiritual maturity. The metaphorical holy temple being built together, he described at the end of chapter 2, with Christ as the cornerstone and the rest of us built on the foundation of the apostles and New Testament prophets, or today we might say on the foundation of the New Testament. So he's been telling them of this magnificent salvation, how Christ has made peace both between us and God and peace with each other, this mystery of the church now revealed Chapter 2, Jewish and Gentile Christians brought together into one new person in Christ in terms of their position in Christ. Now he prays that they will be united, not just in position, but experientially in Christ's love. And this prayer for power in love sets them up for the next three chapters that follow. Starting next week, we'll look at chapter 4, where we see the ethical demands of the letter. Okay, how, do we, how do we treat each other in the church, in our various relationships, standing up to evil forces in chapter 6? How do we do any of these things commanded in these next chapters? Well, how we do it is with power in love, and that's what he prays for. So let's consider this address in verse 14. When Paul examines the worldwide work of redemption in Christ, it results in humble adoration of the Father. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Jesus instructed his followers, of course, to pray to the Father, which Paul does. Now, most Jews stood up to pray. Kneeling was not customary. Paul bows his knees. His posture here is one of humility, certainly. We see this in the Old Testament. Bowing the knee indicates absolute submission But his posture is also one of urgency. There's an urgency for the Ephesians to be equipped to do what he's going to write them to do in the next three chapters. Possibly, there's even here a posture of emotion. We see in Acts chapter 20 when Paul kneels with the Ephesian elders in his heartbreaking departure. He loves these people. And perhaps some of that is demonstrated here as he pleads to the Father on their behalf. The rest of this address to the Father in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, is just a way to recognize his sovereignty. He's praying to the supreme authority who has dominion. And Paul prays, as we can pray, with absolute certainty that he will be heard. Arnold says this, there's no force in heaven or on earth that can sever this line of communication Paul has with the Almighty God. Let's look at his first request now, number two in your outline. Asking to have God's power in us. 
verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In the New Testament, Paul's prayers are almost exclusively on the spiritual welfare of others. That's his priority. Back in chapter 1, he prayed they would know this power. Now he prays they would experience it. Note this request is according to the riches of God's glory. Kent Hughes writes this, It would be fruitless to come to a pauper with our request. No matter how moving and passionate the appeal may be. But to come to the one from whom and to whom are all things is a different story. Think of someone like Bill Gates. He can give from his riches, but God gives according to his riches. On the scale and in the style of the wealth of his glory. God has so much power and he's able and willing to impart to his people. And this is done by the Holy Spirit in your inner being. This is very personal. Much of Ephesians focuses on the corporate church, believers in the plural. But the Holy Spirit dwells in each individual believer. And Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would give them this power. In the Old Testament, people often prayed for physical strength. King David, for instance, in his prayers when he was in battle, he needed physical strength to defeat the enemy. We need spiritual strength to battle our enemy, as we see in chapter 6. The Holy Spirit in your inner being is saying the same thing he says next. Christ dwelling in your heart. Christ dwelling in the heart is another way of saying the Holy Spirit's power strengthening your inner being. Paul may distinguish, but never separates the Son and the Spirit. Now, you might say, why would he pray for that? I mean, doesn't Christ already dwell in the hearts of believers? Yes, he does. He's not praying here for an initial dwelling, but an increased continual presence. As Stott says, it is a matter of degrees. Sanctification or transformation or our growth in holiness to maturity in Christ's likeness is gradual. It's a process of having Christ exercise his lordship and reign over increasingly, increasing numbers of areas in your life. That's gradual. So as we think about this letter as a whole and what's coming in the next three chapters, it's important to prepare for what's required of us in the rest of the letter. A deeper experience of the empowering Christ. So his lordship and mastery over us is exhibited in ever-increasing ways. This word dwell is a strong Verb, it means to take up residence, and this happens through faith. Trusting in him. Trusting him more and more as he makes our hearts his home. Remember, the heart in the Bible is the command station of the will. It's the center of our desires and the inception of our decisions. He prays that Christ will increasingly take up residence in that place. So that his rule will shape your desires and determine your actions. If you want to realize all God has for you, he needs to be the Lord of your heart. 
all of it. Giving yourself fully to him. As Tony Evans says, you can't have a tanker full of blessing when you have a thimble worth of relationship with the Lord. We need increased capacity so that he can fill us more and more. To paraphrase Stuart Briscoe, we need to be like the little boy who fell into a barrel of chocolate. He prayed, Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity. (laughs) So this power he prays for is to have the capacity to accomplish all that's required in the letter. Resisting the evil one. Ridding ourselves of sinful patterns. Putting on the virtue of Christ. Building up the community of believers. Spreading the gospel. We see the same thing, really, reflected in a slightly different way in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Let me just read some uh, verses from Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. These imperatives match directly to this prayer for the Ephesians. Christ dwelling and ruling in your hearts, making decisions in your life about sin, holiness, accordingly. This takes power from the Holy Spirit in your inner being, and that's what he prays for. Let's consider the second request now, number three in your outline. Asking to know Christ's love for us. That you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The end of verse 17 speaks of foundations that you cannot see. Okay, the first metaphor, rooted, of course, is from agriculture. And the second one, grounded, speaks of architecture, the foundation. In both cases, whether a well-built house or a well-rooted tree, the foundations are the unseen cause of stability. These are great metaphors for this truth about the love of Christ for us, which is the unseen foundation of everything we do. It's the source of our stability. To be clear, the love of Christ is here, in this case, is not our love for Christ, but Christ's love for us. O'Brien says, his love for us is the soil in which believers are rooted and will grow. Remember back in the first few verses of the letter, we were chosen and blessed in the beloved. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Later in chapter 2, because of his great love for us, he made us alive with Christ. Then shown through his work on the cross, his blood which has made peace and unity with each other. That love is something they know, but not the extent of it. 
Just like with the dwelling of Christ within, knowing this love is also a matter of degrees. And he prays we would comprehend in greater degrees, not just know something intellectually, but experientially. You know, we can know someone, you can know someone loves you, but experiencing that love is is different, isn't it? The fact that it surpasses knowledge doesn't mean it's unknowable. It just means it can never be fully known. We can never exhaust it. Boyce tells a story about the early 1800s when Napoleon's armies opened a prison that had been used by the Spanish Inquisition. They found the remains of a prisoner who had been incarcerated for his faith. The dungeon was underground, the body long since decayed, only a chain fastened around an ankle bone cried out his confinement. But the prisoner long since dead had left a witness. On the wall of his small, dismal cell, this faithful soldier of Christ had scratched a rough cross with four words surrounding it in Spanish. Above the cross was the Spanish word for height. Below the word depth. To the left, the word width. To the right, the word length. Clearly, this prisoner wanted to testify to the surpassing greatness of the love of Christ for him, even perceived in his suffering. As we sing in that marvelous hymn, Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. John Stott says it this way. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt him into heaven. Whether you go forward, backward, up or down, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Praise God. So again, Paul prays for increased knowledge and experience of this love. To be filled with all the fullness of God. Now note, he wants him to comprehend with all the saints. This is not some individual academic knowledge. Something that pervades our relationships with fellow believers. That's how the impact of understanding this love plays out. Love for others. Notice verse 21. To him be the glory in the church. It's critical throughout the New Testament that individual believers are connected to a local church. John Stott, again, the isolated Christian can indeed know something of the love of Jesus, but his grasp of it, grasp of it is bound to be limited by his limited experience. It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. All the saints together, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, young, old, black, white, with all their varied backgrounds and experiences, end quote. It's only in the context of the church, sharing life and ministry with and to our brothers and sisters, that this love can be realized. When you're tempted to get angry or impatient with someone's failures, recalibrate to Christ's love for you. Serve others because he served you. And the goal here is our maturity. Carson says, 
Paul wants us to have the power to grasp the love of God in Christ Jesus to the end or to the goal that we might be mature. To be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God is simply Paul's way of saying to be all that God wants you to be or to be spiritually mature. And that maturity plays out in our service to one another. In the next chapter, we read about equipping the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We cannot reach that maturity without understanding how much Christ loves us. Carson tells a story about his colleague at Trinity where he was teaching. There was a couple who for years had served as foster parents. Most of the children they had helped were now grown into adulthood, but they had them as newborns and stayed with them until they were adopted. At one point, the agency with whom they were connected asked them to take in twin 18-month-old boys. They hesitated but agreed to accept them when the agency assured them that the boys would be with them for only about six weeks. The first night, the boys were put to bed and not a peep came from their bedroom. Curious, he crept into their room. A half hour later, he found both boys wide awake with their pillows wet with tears. But neither was making a sound. It transpired that they had been beaten for crying in several of their homes in which they had been placed before coming to them. This was their ninth home. Testing suggested that the twins were damaged emotionally and intellectually. As it happens, the twins stayed with them close to two years. And by the end, they were adopted, and after being tested again, they were judged within the normal range of intellectual and emotional capacity. Unless a child is reared where love and discipline surround every step, the child cannot reach maturity. The same is true spiritually. A Christian who does not grow in the experience of the love of God in Christ does not grow to full maturity. The analogy breaks down, of course, because we run from God's love, like the prodigal son. But the result is the same. Immaturity, broken relationships, no trust, Spiritual bankruptcy. The remedy is increased capacity to grasp the love Jesus has for you. And that's exactly what Paul prays for. Finally, in his prayer, let's consider number four, the adoration. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Armitage Robinson says, No prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. Has Paul gone over the top here? No. Because God can exceed what we ask. What God can do is not limited to our imagination. This power at work within us doesn't come from us. Tony Evans says it this way. This is brilliant. The fire hydrant is small, but it can gush water in volumes way out of proportion to its size because the water isn't in the hydrant. The hydrant is connected to a reservoir that's always 
full. When the church is in sync with Jesus, it has an overflowing reservoir. God's power can gush out of churches and individuals that are connected to him like that. This prayer ends with a doxology that doesn't actually just close the prayer, but really closes the entire first part of the letter that we started way back in the third verse of the letter. Now he closes the doctrinal part and moves into the practical. Next week we'll see this in chapter 4. And these super superlatives here at the end of his, in his prayer are really something else. And John Stott does an outstanding job walking through this in sort of seven escalating uh, stages, which I'm just going to read for you. Stage one, God, he, is able to do, for he is neither idle nor dead. Stage two, he is able to do what we ask, for he hears and answers prayer. Stage three, he is able to do what we ask or think, because he reads our thoughts. And sometimes we imagine things for which we dare not ask. Stage four, he is able to do all that we ask or think, for he knows it all and can perform it all. Stage five, he is able to do more than all we ask or think because his expectations are much higher than ours. Stage six, he is able to do more abundantly than all we ask or think, for he does not give us his grace by calculated measure. Stage seven, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, for he is a God of super abundance. This is the super superlative of the Apostle Paul about our great God. And the Lord wants you to feel it, and he wants you to believe it. Now, what can we take away here in our application from Paul's prayer for the Ephesians? How can we pray with Paul, as it were? How can we pray for each other? And how can we pray for ourselves? First, pray with a purpose. Our maturity for his glory. One of Stephen Covey's habits of highly effective people is to begin with the end in mind. Okay, before you start something, you should fix your eyes on the end goal. This keeps you from going down a wrong path. Focusing on the end goal prevents you from wasting time on distractions or things that do not help you reach the goal. It, it keeps you focused on the why of what you're doing. Well, prayer is no different. Why do we pray? Well, the end goal in this prayer from Paul, the ultimate reason he prays these things for them, is this filling of God in them to the glory of Christ in the church. As we are mastered by Christ, we are conformed to him and his will, we mature in the faith and become more like him. 2 Corinthians 3, growing in the likeness of Christ. This brings glory to him. This is why Bible intake and prayer must go together. We spend a lot of time, rightfully so, at the beginning of, of each year, pushing Bible reading programs, Bible study, Bible intake, because the intake of God's word shows us his will for us and where we need to mature, where we need to be filled, where we need to be ruled by Christ. John Stott says, for it is in scripture that God has disclosed his will, and it is in prayer that we ask him to do it. Now, when we pray, we often pray in the name of Jesus, which is another way of asking according to Jesus' character, his will, his priorities. And when we pray for something, 
we often say, not our will, but your will, because we're often unsure what his will is in a given situation. Not so with this prayer. This is his will. Verse Thessalonians 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which means your growth in holiness, your filling to the fullness of God in every area of your life, your submission to his word instead of your sinful desires for how you act or think. That's God's will. So we can pray these things with extra boldness because we know from his own word this is exactly what he wants for us. This power and perspective which results in the goal of our spiritual maturity for his glory. Now, with that end in mind, let's consider these two requests. First, pray for power, the Holy Spirit. There are a number of interconnected uh, elements in Paul's prayer. Christ dwelling in your heart, the, the power through his spirit in your inner being, filled with the fullness of God, the power at work in us. All these things sort of intersect on the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's where all the power comes from. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. God's presence actually residing in us from the moment we put our faith in Christ. Last year I read a really good, interesting book on the theology of the Holy Spirit by Kostenberger and Allison. And it was unique. I'd never seen anything like it. And what they did in the first part of the book super helpful. They trace the activity of the Holy Spirit through the Old and New Testaments and came up with five interconnected things that are evidenced by the Holy Spirit's activity. This is what they write. The Holy Spirit is God's presence resulting in life, power, holiness, truth, and unity. I find it so helpful when scholars do this kind of thing, analyze and then summarize. Let's face it, Bible scholars can often confuse things. They can make Scripture less clear. But in this case, they analyze and summarize. It's very helpful. I'm just going to go through these quickly. First, the Holy Spirit's activity results in life. Okay, no life without him, physical or spiritual. He makes alive what is dead. If a church is dead, the Holy Spirit isn't working. Second, the Holy Spirit's activity results in power. We see throughout our passage, we need power to battle sin, power to battle temptation, power to battle the dark forces of evil in our present age, power for evangelism, power for effective ministry in the church. Third, the Holy Spirit's activity results in holiness, a life lived separately for God, living in the manner that God wants for the purpose God wants. The ends and the means are important to holiness. We never justify sin to get what we think is a good result. Same with the Holy Spirit's activity in the church. Separated for God's ways and God's purpose. We're not following earthly ways or going for some earthly purpose like politics, for instance. Fourth, the Holy Spirit's activity results in truth. Certainly the truth about Jesus and the gospel, but also discernment and the separation of truth from error. And finally, the Holy Spirit's activity results in unity. Obviously, a a key theme in this letter, where there were once divisions, there is now unity in Christ. Peacemaking is evidence of the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting in Acts 15, 
When Luke describes the circumstances and decisions that were made in the Jerusalem council, which from a human perspective could have been a disaster. Okay, we've, we've never allowed uncircumcised to be a part of the people of God. Well, they reached unity in their decision. And it's interesting, Luke writes this as he explains their decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. He knew their unity on this was a direct activity of the Holy Spirit. So his presence results in power, in life, in holiness, in truth, and unity. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not so much God giving more of himself to you, but rather you giving more of yourself to him. Let me try to illustrate this. Before I was married, I had what I thought was a pretty good taste in decor. Okay, some of you know where this is going. I had a small townhome with some pretty cool things on the walls. I had a poster of Joe DiMaggio at the plate, circa 1942 with his classic follow-through. I had a photograph of Ben Hogan's famous one-iron shot down the 18th fairway in 1950 U.S. Open. An original movie theater hung poster of a river runs through it with all that fly line up in the air over the boulder on the Montana River. Even a Renoir, although that piece wasn't original, of course. But two sisters on the terrace. I mean, a, such a warm and tasteful piece. I thought everything was just exactly right, right where it was. Well, I got married, praise God. And Laura moved in and began to dwell <laughs> in our home. And it didn't take long for Laura's preferences to find its way into the decor. In fact, it was immediate. <laughs> and slowly but surely, all those great pieces found themselves one by one on the walls of my office instead. <laughs> but this is where the story gets more interesting. For many years, my office was my office. The last bastion of pre-Laura decor. <laughs> It was the one place where my preferences were still reflected on the walls. Well, about 10 to 15 years into our marriage, apparently it was time to revisit that arrangement. It was time that Laura's influence made its way into my office as well. Well, long story short, none of those pieces are in my office anymore. They've all been removed completely from our living space. They're now either in the garage or in some cases gone forever. Now, here's what I want you to understand. And this is a dangerous thing to say from the pulpit. <laughs> My wife was 100% right about all those things. Okay, our home is way better decorated than it would be if I was still on my own. The process was painful, but it's better now, no question. Let's go back to Paul's prayer. When you become a Christian, Jesus moves in and he begins to dwell. His Holy Spirit starts having his way in your heart. And his influence is obvious immediately. And that's very positive. But in some cases, it's uncomfortable. Because he wants to change things around. You're used to having things the way you want it. Doing things the way you want. And he's pointing out things that have been there for years. Things you're used to. And accustomed to. And frankly, kind of like it that way. And he says, this doesn't belong in this room. And he's always right. Letting him take over can be painful, but it's always better. And the more control you give him, 
the more rooms reflected by his design, as it were, the more mature you'll become. Now, many of us have been in the faith a long time, haven't we? It's been decades in some cases since the Holy Spirit first moved in. But sort of like with my office, there are still rooms where we don't want him to go. There's still a room where we'd rather avoid his influence over what it looks like. We think we can keep one room for ourselves where we still get to make the decisions. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's time to redecorate the office. There's still a room in the house I dwell where you haven't let me be the decision maker. You still have decorations on the wall that reflect your life before I moved in. And we need to get rid of those and start arranging that room the way I want it. And that's very uncomfortable. Maybe even scary to you. Even that room, Lord? Yes. Even that room. But that's my last room where it's just me. And Jesus says, there's no just you anymore. It's time for you to give Jesus even that room to do what he wants in there. And it's painful. And it's better. That's what Paul prays for the Ephesians and that's what I pray for you. And that's what I ask you to pray for me. Because when we let him into that room, To do what he wants, we mature and he's glorified. This is the process of being filled until he comes. As you read and listen to his word, the Holy Spirit points out another room. You might say, Lord, you've already been in that room and changed things around. Well, there's more to change in that room, he says. Last time we took a good look at that room, you were at a completely different level of maturity. Now we're at a different stage in our relationship, and I want to fill you. So we need to go back into that room. And he changes more things, and it's painful, and it's better. And you mature, and he's glorified. And so it continues that Christ may dwell in your hearts. No room left untouched, no wall left undecorated. Change is continually being made in every single room all the time, repenting of sins you didn't even know were sins five years ago, walking in holiness in brand new ways, overcoming fears of rejection as you evangelize, speaking the truth and love to a friend, experiencing unity where there used to be division, serving one another in the church, expending your time and energy with no regard for recognition, simply delighted to follow in the footsteps of your sacrificial Savior. That is the power of the Holy Spirit, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God to accomplish his will. Finally, pray for perspective, the love of Christ. There's a perspective needed to keep in mind in all this. Paul prays this perspective would be driven into the eyes and hearts of the Ephesians, being rooted and grounded in love. The foundation we must have, the perspective we pray for, is Christ's love for us, and to comprehend it more and more, because that understanding will change your life. To look at the cross and see the mind-blowing dimensions of his love for you, it's hard to believe, really. Because we don't know anyone that's perfectly loving. 
But God has no selfish motives at all. Meditate on that. Recognize his all-encompassing love. It brings you security and peace. It can pull us out of depression. Look at how he loves you and give you joy and hope. Understanding this love provides proper perspective for how you treat others. How you treat your spouse. How you treat your kids. How you treat others in the church. How you treat someone who's wronged you. How you treat someone who's treated you unfairly. How you serve people in the church, expending yourself for others out of clear focus for Christ, expending himself for you. How you engage the lost, those who have no idea about this love. Understanding how much he loves you is transformational. Richard Koken relays a story told, I'll close with this. In the 2009 British newspaper, The Daily Mirror, They published the story of bombardier Robert Key, who died in World War II when a grenade he was holding exploded. The Army report blamed him for showing off with the grenade in a recaptured town in France in September of 1944. His family were apparently ashamed because of his service record, citing such foolish foolish reason for his death. They refused to talk about him for 65 years. One day, the mayor of this town in France, where it happened, traced Robert's family to Coventry in 2008 to ask permission to name a road after Robert. Then the truth began to emerge. The family discovered that Robert had, in fact, snatched the grenade from a large group of children he'd found playing with it. When one boy pulled out the pin... Bombardier Key seized the grenade and fled away, clutching their grenade to his stomach to protect the children when it exploded. To this day, Robert remains a legend in the town. And Robert's 62-year-old nephew said this news was amazing, completely different to anything they'd known about his uncle. If you do not know this God, Then the image 2,000 years ago of the God, the Son, writhing in pain on that violent, bloody cross may seem very strange to you. In fact, it might even seem foolish to you. But it changes your perspective when you realize it was out of immeasurable love for you that he took that grenade of eternal punishment and clutched it close to himself. That the explosion of God's judgment would fall upon him so that it would not fall upon you. And so that instead you might live and enjoy complete forgiveness and eternal life with him. That changes your perspective, and that's the truth, my friends. I pray it opens your eyes to the profound depth of his love for you, that you might trust in him, give your life to him, and enter into the most incredible relationship you could ever imagine, that the lover of your soul may dwell in your heart and have his way in your life. Please stand with me as we close.